Welcome back to Brojo Online. I have a very special guest for you today, Justin Stenstrom. He actually appeared on the podcast quite some time ago and he shared his massive backstory overcoming chronic and crippling anxiety and depression. And he's back today to talk about his new book, The Elite Mind. And in this book, he talks about how to transition from someone who's ruled by anxiety and depression into somebody who's confident and productive. This is the real deal. This guy is worth listening to. We had a great conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Intro. You know, a lot of my audience have heard you already in our earlier podcast. And they got a sense of you kind of rising from the ashes um, background. You know, you, you had a lot of hardship you had to deal with in your younger years. And to see you now is a complete transformation, which is why I'm excited to talk to you about your, uh, your book. Because I get a sense that this book is going to be a representation of, of the things that you've learned that uh, you talk about as becoming an elite man. So what I was hoping to talk to you a bit about today is, is what's in the book, why you wrote it, uh, what you hope it will do for people and so on. Um, I think the first thing I want to know is elite man. What does that term mean to you? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on, bro. It's good to come back on the show and you know, talk with you. I had you on my show a couple, like a month or two ago. So, mm. you know, hopefully you guys can check that out. You were awesome on the show and it's always just a pleasure catching up with you. I was on here a few years ago, man, had a blast and I'm you know, happy to be back on again. But to answer your question specifically, elite man, I get that one from time to time. I don't get it as much these days, but I do, I like the question and I get it from time to time and it just kind of refreshes my own memory of why I created it in the first place. And some people from the outside who don't know anything about elite man, maybe don't know me personally or have heard like any of the interviews and stuff I do. I think some people think that it's like a, a status kind of thing, like the elitism type of thing. Some yeah. people, not all people, some people have that idea. And I think it just comes, just comes from that word elite. But to me, when I set up elite man, it was all about just being the best man that you can be. It's not about really competing with other people. It's definitely not about the elitism that is associated with that sometimes. It's really just about focusing on yourself and becoming the best version of yourself. And really, if you can just translate or substitute elite for best, it's the same type of thing. It's about being the best version that you can be of yourself in all aspects of life, whether that's business, health, fitness, relationships, anything really across the board and just living life on your terms. Now, that's what I suspected, knowing you as I do. Um, but I, I can see how, you know, people are going to come in with a connotation to the word elite and mm -hmm. go in a different direction. I think it's great that you could clarify that. Thanks. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you, you've never struck me as even remotely elitist. And <laughs> you've always... Now, this is why I'm excited to both read and promote your book, is you weren't starting from an advantaged position, in my opinion. You know, I remember our first talk of where you started from. You really were kind of at zero or rock bottom or whatever you want to call it. So for you to build up to what you call elite, which is, you know, the best you can be mm -hmm. from zero means you had to go the whole path, the whole spectrum. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. I want to give you kind of open mic here. Tell us a little bit about what's in the book and how it relates to your, your pathway of growth as well. 
So the book is Elite Mind and, you know, it's obviously based off the same concept. It's not just, it's not about elitism. It's not about comparing yourself. It's about having the best mind that you can have and being the best version of yourself. And really, it's always started for me in the mind. That has, it's actually worked against me for many years. And, you know, I know you're familiar with my background, Dan, and having anxiety, having depression, getting panic attacks three to four times a week, having no confidence, no self-esteem. Those were all issues that I faced personally. I faced them for years and it was my mindset that was controlling all those things. It was my mind that was messed up. And back then I didn't have what I would call today an elite mind, which is what I share for people in the book of how to get. It's about creating the the right attitudes, the right mindset, the right beliefs in yourself. And there's a whole process too. In the beginning of the book, we'll talk, we talk mostly about uh, the anxiety aspect of it and the panic attack aspect because when that's out of whack, it's, it really just like hijacks your mind. You can't even like process normal day-to-day stuff that just anybody would, like the average Joe would be able to process and function through life. And when you have anxiety really bad or you have panic attacks, I mean, it really does take over and just kind of hijack your whole system so getting that back on track is really the first step and then like the middle part of the book is a overcoming depression so you can have you can be a normal guy you can have no problems with anxiety you can have no problems with panic attacks but at the same time there's something that's that's eating away at you it's really just kind of you know hurting your soul to at some point some regard and again this can be different for for everybody like some people it's really bad really severe to the point where they're suicidal i was actually one of those people for about a year or so um, for, for other people, it's just kind of like a crappy melancholy, like feeling where they're not like ready to kill themselves or not even thinking about that, but they're just dragging through life. Like every day is the same boring blah. And the next day after that's the same, the week after that, like there's no real excitement in their life and they are depressed in some level. So the middle of the book is really about getting past that depression. And then the last part of the book is really, it's about, it's like confidence section, actually a confidence part of the book of taking yourself from not just getting over anxiety or depression, but at the end of it, actually having this self-belief and self-esteem that you can do whatever you want in life. You don't just have to be an average Joe who's unhappy and just kind of, you know, skating by in life, passively living. You can actually take life by the reins and and start to do the things that you really want to do. And that's really where the elite mind comes into effect is having that mindset of you're going to be the best version of yourself and you're going to do whatever you want in life because you have this belief in yourself to do it. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a really concise summary of it. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. This is why I'm excited about you writing this book is because of too many people, in my opinion, who write any kind of sort of self-development material on anxiety and depression, right? So they write from an outsider perspective. They've never really been in it or actually never really dealt with being in it properly. And they're just kind of commenting on what they think should work. Whereas you're, I mean, you had to get through it. You were deep in it. As you say, like depressed to the point of suicidal, anxious to the point of panic attacks. It doesn't get worse than that. So for you to actually come to the, the point where you're so clearly confident in yourself um, means there's no bullshit in this. You, you had to do something that worked. You couldn't fake it. Yeah. Um, so I'm really keen. I mean, obviously reading the book will bring out the details, but I'm keen to explore a little bit more about these three sections in the book, particularly, actually, I want to start at the end, <laughs> which is, you know, I see a lot of self-development material out there around say surviving 
anxiety and depression, just kind of like how to live with it and how to like tackle it on a day-to-day basis. And what, what, what's the difference in that third section where you actually go from just surviving to what you might call thriving or, or really making something of your life once you're out of the hole? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, it's interesting place to start too, because like you said, you, you want to focus or most times you want to focus on the negative aspects or the anxiety or the depression. The interesting thing though, too, is that when people go through anxiety or depression, they actually start to build up this confidence without even realizing it. Like once they face these things, and I actually put this in like one of the very last sections, one of the very last chapters of the book, people who've ever gone through anything, any shit in life, any anxiety, depression, suicidal things, um, setbacks, like major falls, major losses, anyone who's gone through shit, and, and this is pretty much everybody, by the way, but like it's almost, the, it's almost as if the more shit that you've gone through, the more things that you've overcome in your life, the more of a superpower you end up having. This ability, and the superpower is really, it's a combination of a couple things, but it's really like a resiliency, that whatever comes your way thereafter, you have an ability to overcome that like nothing else. It's really, and I've seen this time and time again, over and over again, I've seen this in myself, so many, coach, uh, so many clients that I've coached over the years, so many people that I've interviewed. It, it's just, a, it, it's an incredible, what I call a superpower that springs up, that emerges from the ashes, like you said a moment ago, and all those things that, that have built up over the years of, of you having to overcome them and face them, a lot of people who haven't had to face those things, who've had pretty easy lives and who haven't really had much uh, challenge to overcome, they don't have this power. So when something comes their way inevitably in life, it's like, you know, they're, they're deer in the headlights. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do. But the people who've overcome the most shit, they're like, all right, this is another little setback. Let me just bounce right back up on my feet and tackle the next challenge because it's not anything to them. It's basically like going to the gym. And these people have gone to the mental gym over and over and over again for years. You know, the next time they have to go to the gym and lift a, a set of dumbbells, it's they're curling it with ease or they're bench pressing it with ease. So the confidence, I mean, there's a number of things. We can talk about a few specific things, but the confidence aspect the first of all is is you get that confidence naturally once you overcome these types of things. That's kind of the first point I wanted to make. But the second point really is once you're past this this kind of thing of of defeating some major obstacles in your life, getting over some crippling things, whether that be depression or anxiety or something else, you start to think, you start to see life in a different regard, like a a different um, take on on how life really is. And for me, I guess not everybody does, but many people do. And for me it was like, all right, I've overcome these things in my past. They really sucked. They, they were terrifying. They were terrible for years. But now I overcame that and I feel like I overcame it for a reason. I feel like I overcame it to actually start living life in a different way, do some of the things that I really wanted to do, experience some of those things that I wanted to experience and you know, even help people that I didn't even know I had to help or wanted to help. But all of a sudden, I wanted to help other people get out of depression and anxiety and you know, get confidence and all this other stuff. So it opened up so many different doors for me to just start walking through. And it, it made me invigorated, motivated to start trying and doing different things. And by doing and trying these different things, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, I was just getting more and more confident, more and more self-belief in myself, you know, just through going through these experiences. So the confidence aspect really, it comes from the, from two things. It comes from the overcoming the different things in your life, but then it also overcome, it also occurs when you start to push yourself and actually do some of the things to really experience life in a different way. I am so stoked 
to hear you say that, you know, because I've been trying to get that message across to a few people. Whereas actually, if you're suffering immensely, there is a hidden advantage in that because you're being trained. Yes. You know, I definitely, there's a, a story I want to relate. There's a guy I knew I'll say because he's died. Um, and he was the classic spoiled kid. Like he never had to struggle as a child. He just got everything he wanted or asked for. And nothing was ever made difficult for him. His parents just overindulged him. And when he became an adult, he didn't have to find work. His parents just gave him a job and he could take as much time off as he wanted. And so he was just spoiled continuously. Yeah. And in his thirties, he died and it was a result of basically alcoholism, <clears throat> which is what someone turns to when life is just without challenge. They just fall to pieces whenever the smallest thing goes wrong. They can't handle even basic emotions. They can't handle minor upsets and difficulties because they've never had that challenge. And so they're ultimately disadvantaged. This guy, I have no doubt, essentially died from being spoiled. And somebody like, I know a few people are just like, like you say, chronically depressed or like anxiety to the point of panic, which is just awful, awful to go through. But they don't realize like the strength they're building because of that, that endurance, that stamina, problem solving, the fucking ability to, you know, drag yourself through a work day when no part of your body actually wants to do it, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody who has it easy, doesn't get that training. Um, so it's really interesting to hear you frame that as a strength because I don't think that's wishful thing. I think it's absolutely accurate. It is strength building. It is Jim, which brings me actually back to you talking about mindset at the start. I'm, I'm now even more curious about what mindset means to you. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, tell me a bit about the change in mindset that you're trying to help someone get through with this book so it's actually i think the biggest thing that comes to mind is the the idea of owning what happens in your life and being responsible for everything like there's a lot of people and especially i've made a couple uh, recent videos and stuff on this and talked about on the podcast and uh there's a there's a mindset it's it's a bit of insidious mindset that's it's kind of going across the U.S. for sure, my country, and I'm sure your country as well, because I see it a lot in the younger generation. I'm a millennial actually, but I see it more in like the younger end of the millennial generation. And it's the mindset of, of being a victim and also being entitled and kind of what you talked about with that guy that you knew. A lot of people I, I feel like, and I've seen and experienced a lot, not everybody, but a lot of people in that type of era. And then there's other people obviously outside of that era, that generation that still have the same habits and the same ideas. But a lot of people feel like they, they're owed different things. They're entitled to different things. They have the victim mindset of that, you know, they have to rely on the government or they have to rely on their father or their mother or their brother or their sister or their landlord or their neighbor or their friends. Like they're always looking for other people to accept responsibility for the shit that happens in their lives. But they're never actually taking responsibility and going out and living the life to create the things that they want to happen in their lives. They're just relying on other people to do it. And if something doesn't happen right in their lives, they go and the first thing they do is blame somebody else around them. And so they skirt the responsibility and that other person has to pay for it. And the same thing happens when, when good things are happening. It's not like 
good things are happening because they're going out and working for them or they're working hard or they're, you know, doing different things. They get things handed to them essentially. And, you know, that's where they get their happiness. That's where they, they thrive in that little comfort zone where they just are basically having everything handed to them. And so the same, like bringing it back to uh, mental health and, and just the mindset of, of success that people have to have in life. It's like, you can either be one of two people. You can be someone who is like that, unfortunately, younger generation of millennials I see. And it's not all of them. Again, I want to kind of reiterate that, but a lot of them, you can be someone like that, who's always relying on other people, who's always skirting responsibility, who never wants to take blame for shit that goes wrong in your life. And I think that mindset of never accepting that responsibility just leads to more and more depression and more and more anxiety because, you know, you have to jump, whatever your doctor says, you have to listen to that. If they tell you medication right away, you, you, you have to jump on that. I, I mentioned that too, because in the first chapter of the book, I talk about how I was getting anxiety. And the first thing they did was give me a clonazepam, K-pins, they call them. Mm. And, uh, it, you know, it, the doctor was kind of like um, dismissive of me. I go in there, I was having panic attacks and anxiety. And I didn't know what the hell it was. I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought it might've been, I read, I read a magazine actually while I was sitting on the toilet one night. And, um, you know, I was reading these symptoms of schizophrenia and all of a sudden I was sure that I had schizophrenia and I went crazy. That was actually my first panic attack. The very next day I go to the hospital um, because I, I, I couldn't go to the doctor right away. And the, immediately the dismissive doctor, I actually call him Dr. Empathy in the chapter. He, uh, he just like kind of didn't care about what I said and, and was immediately like, all right, just take these pills, you know, clonazepam. They're very strong anti-anxiety medications. Uh, he didn't say that, but they are. And, you know, basically... I don't really care about what you say. Here they are. See you later. Good luck. And, you know, the very next thing I do is go to the psychiatrist, which he also recommended uh, to see just to kind of check up on the dosage and stuff. And they basically said the same thing. Here's some more medication. It was actually a different one to add on top of that. And uh, thankfully, long story short, I didn't jump on the medication. I'm not to say, I'm not here saying that all medication is bad or that you should jump off any meds. Definitely don't do that. If you're on them right now, you got to consult with a doctor. I'm just simply saying that not doing your own due diligence, not taking responsibility of your own health, not, you know, doing your own investigation and, and considering all the possibilities, but just relying on other people to tell you what is right, to basically take charge of your own life and your own health. That's the negative way of thinking. That's the, that's the type of thinking that gets you in that, those problems in the first place, to have the depression, to have the anxiety. If you're of the mindset of you're in charge of your own health, you're in charge of your own life, you're in charge of whatever happens to you, you're on the mindset to get past whatever comes your way. When anxiety pops up, when depression pops up, if you know that you're in charge of everything that happens to you, you know that you can get over it and you will get over it. Yeah, I think you and I have come to the same conclusion over time that you know, nothing happens before responsibility is taken. It's, it's actually something I've struggled to express to people. I like the way you're talking about it, <clears throat> where people don't understand that all the pain and suffering that they're going through is, is firstly about an absence of responsibility. You know, the, the guy I mentioned before was a very extreme case. He never had to take responsibility for anything. Um, I'm not going to say who he is, but I think his parents really let him down. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine their guilt if they were kind of to put the pieces together as to why he ended up like that they were trying their best to help them, but they didn't realize what help actually is. And sometimes letting someone suffer and struggle and solve their own problems is helping them. Yes. Um, fixing them and controlling them and making life a nice cushy little um, palace for them is does more harm than good. 
Um, this is why, like, I think the most fascinating thing I'm finding about this so far is the idea that that suffering through anxiety and depression becomes training and, and strength building if you take responsibility. That's the kind of a, uh, equation I'm putting together. Is that about right? Yeah, actually, and I didn't really think of it in those terms, but that sounds like, you know, dead on accurate for sure. And that's really what it's all about is, is changing that mindset. So you might be like your friend was on the far end of the spectrum of never having responsibility ever in his life. Mm -hmm. Some people are probably more in the middle, but you want to be on the opposite end of taking full responsibility of everything that comes your way. And that's really what elite mind is. Having an elite mind is, is being on the polar opposite end of that and accepting everything that comes your way. But also knowing that by doing that, you're in charge of everything that happens in your life. You are in charge of your destiny when you do that. You don't have to rely on your parents. You don't have to rely on your landlord, your neighbor, your friends, your doctor. It doesn't matter what all those people say. Yeah, many of them want the best things for you. They have the best interest in mind. But a lot of them could be misleading you or you know, unintentionally, unwittingly, unwittingly setting you down a wrong path. And at the end of the day, it's up to you to decide which path you want to go down and what's right for you. Yeah, now I think we need to explore this even further. You know, I, it's interesting. I now live in the Czech Republic, a very traditional country and oh, yeah. culture. And so there's a lot of like, you just follow the rules, you know, you, you finish school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids. It's just this like kind of checklist you got to go through and everyone's huge amount of pressure on each other to follow this checklist. <laughs> Pretty kind of Roman Catholic kind of checklist. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is to just to be an outsider and to watch as like some parents berate their children about the checklist. And yet the parents are miserable from having followed the checklist <laughs> and now they're passing that on and no yeah. one's kind of taking responsibility to go, maybe I'm going to write my own ticket here. Maybe I need to decide what the rules are for myself and not follow them for everybody else. So the misery actually not only being solved by responsibility, but actually being caused by not taking responsibility that kind of vicious loop that people get in where they follow the rules, but the rules don't take them anywhere good. Um, yeah, really, this is why I think people need to be listening to you about this because you were, as we talked about, like, you know, panic attacks, worried that you've got schizophrenia, you know, suicidal level of depression. The human psyche can't really suffer more than that. That's like one step before death, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. about as bad as it gets. So, what I'm really interested in is how you are able to transition from there to taking responsibility because in that place, it is so tempting. It's almost compulsive to blame others. How did you shift into taking ownership for yourself? That's a great question. Uh, one of the biggest things actually at the time was, was real. And with the help actually of my father, because my father wasn't a huge he wasn't there for most of the journey for me to do this. And it, it was really, and I'm not just saying it, but it was truly just kind of like me doing it on my own. But he was there for the initial part of it where I actually took that medication for literally one day. Mm. And then he found the bottle and was like, essentially says, this is not good for you. This isn't the right way to do it. He didn't give me the answer. He didn't tell me, you know, do this, this, and this. But he told me this right here is not the answer. So you got to figure out what it is you're going to do. And basically, I mean, and that's kind of the mindset I always had was 
you know, that kind of tough love that a lot, I think you talked about a moment ago and that a lot of people are missing. Uh, my father's a really tough guy. He was, you know, pretty strict growing up. He, he was, when we got in trouble in school, he, he definitely would, uh, you know, let us know and straighten us out. He wasn't afraid to smack us around a little bit, you know, wasn't like beating us up kind of stuff. But if we got out of line and we deserved it, we got, you know, smacked a little bit. And that toughness kind of was always there, but it was lost in that whole mix of uh, incredible emotion of anxiety, depression, et cetera. But, you know, I, I needed that reminder. And he found that, you know, bottle of anxiety on the counter and, and, and reminded me that this isn't, the, this isn't the path that you want to go. He had some friends, actually, that had taken uh, some pretty bad uh, anxiety and depression meds and stuff. And a lot of them actually ended up committing suicide as a result of it or allegedly as a result of taking that. Like, it made their anxiety and, and depression a lot worse. And so he was just, like, totally against it. And, again, he didn't offer the solution of, like, you know, you have to do this instead or, you know, try, try out a bunch of stuff, but he was basically like, this isn't the right answer. So you got to find something else. And with that reminder, that's all I really needed. I needed that little push and encouragement to figure it out. And then I could figure it out. And he was like, you know, I'm here for you. If you need me, I'm always going to be here for you. I needed that too. I need that side of him too. And I got that initially. And from there, it was just like, all right, I'm not going to give up no matter what happens. I might end up dying from this literally might end up dying from this, but I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to, um, you know, go out and, and willingly commit suicide or any of this other stuff. I'm not going to start, I'm, I'm going to stop thinking about that even. And I'm going to figure out the solution no matter what, at what cost it's going to be something natural. It's not going to be medication because I have to rely on that all the time. Um, but I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to, you know, turn over every single stone possible until I figure out how to get back, how to get my mind back. And that's really what, uh, what motivated me. Well, I think that's, that's what a lot of people are missing. You know, I, I can still see it in my own life. Something goes wrong and this little urge in me goes, right, whose fault is this? You know, it's just, it's just that initial reaction is like, who do I point the finger at for this? Um, and despite rationally knowing that that's a path that goes nowhere good and nowhere helpful, a pointless path, I still get that little urge. I can only imagine that for some people, and I can remember from my earlier life, that urge is more like a roaring compulsion. They can't even really conceptualize that you don't get anything out of blaming, that there's responsibility in going, okay, how do I take care of business rather than who, who fucked this up for me? Um, that's what I'm really interested in. Like, imagine someone's listening to us right now and they're just in that sort of compulsion mindset where like if anything goes wrong, all they're doing is just pointing fingers, trying to assign blame. How does somebody break out of that? I think the best way to break out of that is, is just to realize that, again, if you want to go down that path, you, you're just going down a path that's going to lead to nowhere. It's not, it, you're not going to be happy at the end of that road. No matter what you do, if you're, if you're someone who just always wants to blame other people, always wants to skirt the responsibility, always wants to point at the next guy and say, oh, well, he should have did a better job or my parents didn't raise me right or I didn't have enough money growing up, I was poor. You're just never going to find happiness because you don't have the mentality to pull yourself out and be successful when shit comes your way and it comes your way all the time in life. Life's tough, man. Dan, I know you probably know just as much as I know, having your own business, being your own entrepreneur, running your own, you know, running your own thing and just trying to make it buy is, is hard enough as it is. Never mind all the other crap that life has to have. You know, it, it, as you get older too, you just appreciate all the, all the things that you've overcome already because 
it's a struggle. Every day is tough, man. It's not easy. No one ever said it was easy for some people. And again, for some people that it is easy for, it's just because they're not exposed to the real world. They don't have the, uh, the same experiences and the same responsibility. And, you know, they, they live a cushy life. But when, when it gets to, when reality hits, sets their way and they're actually not left with that cushion, they realize just how tough it is. And a lot of people don't survive that. You know, they end up being uh, very depressed at some point in their lives, they end up being an alcoholic or getting on drugs. I actually live, I'm in Massachusetts, but uh, the, the town that I live in, the city, it's a small city. The town I live in is called uh, Taunton, Mass. And it's a, it's a fairly nice town. It's, it's not like super nice. It's not super rich. There's, there's definitely crappy parts of it. Um, but for some reason, we have one of the worst heroin epidemics and like per capita, I don't know if this is an exact stat, so don't quote me on it, but like per capita, we have like the worst rate of, of heroin users in the country, one of them anyways. And it's like, why, where did this all come from? Like what, and it's, but that's what it is, man. It's, it's about that responsibility. It's about people that don't have ambition to go out and create the life they want and do things they, because everyone's sitting around, they get depressed all day. And there's another state too, New Hampshire. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but it's a little bit up North from mass. New Hampshire is like one of the worst States in the entire country too. And it's basically, it's like all woodsy and there's not really a ton. There's no real cities up there. It's just kind of people sitting around and having nothing else to do. No, no motivation, but they're just kind of floating by and, like they say, idle time is the devil's workshop. When people are just sitting around doing nothing, they, they pick up stupid habits. And when they don't have responsibilities, they don't feel the toughness of, you know, what life really is about. They just do stupid shit like trying out drugs or, you know, drinking alcohol all the time to pass time away. It's like there's a, there's a combination of a number of factors that contribute to these things. But some of the big ones are not having motivation, not having a purpose, uh, not having responsibility. You add up like a few of these key things and you're just putting a recipe for disaster <clears throat> you know i think you're really insightful about that um that opiate e epidemic that you've got over there in the states yeah. um you know I, I saw a few different sort of documentaries or or editorials about it and essentially what we're talking about is people start with painkillers they get hooked and then they escalate up to things like heroin um well, why would someone take a painkiller? Because they don't want pain. And there's something very symbolic about that, you know, and the difference between what you did, rather than taking medication to get away from the pain, you chose to face the pain and deal with it kind of properly, which takes longer and it hurts more, but it's healthier in the long run, as opposed to just numb it now and not have to deal with it, which means it just builds and percolates and toxifies and mutates, you know, for... I think you've actually made a really accurate cultural kind of insight there, which is in a, in a country like the United States, where kind of pain tolerance has gotten really low, I think, compared to the past. You know, people just looking for that quick fix, that instant gratification that I don't want to have to deal with this. This is somebody else's problem. How can I fix it straight away? I mean, that's, that's like a ripe kind of fertile soil for something like a opiate epidemic to grow in. Yeah. Um, whereas someone like you, you're never really going to be at risk of that. You know? Yeah. No. Everybody around you could become an addict, but you're not going to. And that's a mindset thing. You know, even when I saw the documentaries about the epidemic, the documentaries themselves were full of blame. You know, it's the big pharmaceutical companies <laughs> pushing the yeah. drugs. I'm like, 
dude, nobody's tying people down and injecting them. They're making that choice on their own. And until they take responsibility for that choice, this epidemic will continue to grow. Yeah. And, you know, I can speak from my own experience before I sort of made that switch over to responsibility for myself. I wouldn't say I was a drug addict, but I was a drug user for sure. <laughs> Especially when you consider that alcohol is just a legal drug. Yeah. Same thing. Drug. Um, but you know, every weekend I just blotted myself out, you know, I could function at work and I wasn't like stealing jewelry or anything. I was a functioning addict if there is such a thing. But, you know, anytime uncomfortable emotions came up, I just reached for the weed or the beer or the pills. So I didn't have to deal with them. And all that did was compound my problems over time. Whereas yeah. if I just said, you know, I'm going to face this week's emotions clear headed, it would have sucked, but been healthier for the long term, you know, which is eventually the switch I made. So I think I'm seeing a, this is what I love about the kind of, that three-stage process that you described in your book. Anxiety and depression on the surface seem like such great excuses to take an easy way out and to blame others, you know. Anybody can make up a story as to why their parents are at fault for their depression and so on. Anybody can do it. But when you actually go, you know what, it's my job to deal with this, then you become, as you said, in a way it is like the other version of elite. You get into that small group of people that do something healthy with that problem as opposed to the rest who kind of just drag it out. Really fascinating stuff, man. I mean, <clears throat> I wonder, I, I want to get your opinion on this. You were at like the worst of anxiety. The worst form of anxiety is panic attacks and the worst form of depression is suicidality. I'm sure of that. Yeah. So you're right in the hole. Um, I wonder, is it because some people don't get that bad that they don't change? I mean, what was the relationship, if any, between getting right to the worst point and having that as a catalyst for change? I think that definitely has a lot to do with it. Like some people, they'll have like a surface level depression or surface level anxiety and, you know, they'll just ignore it. They'll pretend like it's not there or they'll self-medicate a lot of people, alcohol, big, big alcohol users, or, you know, pain meds, like you mentioned, uh, weed is another big one. And, and like, not that there's anything I'm not against, you know, those types of things in certain aspects. I drink alcohol on the weekends. Sometimes I have a few beers, I have a few drinks. Uh, I don't rely on it. I don't have to go out and have alcohol, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that occasionally or occasionally smoking weed. I, like my brother smokes weed every single day. Uh, you know, maybe there's a little anxiety there, but overall he's, to me, very healthy and he takes care of his body. So there's nothing wrong with those things inherently, but it is a problem when you're masking something up, you're covering different things. And I think a lot of people deal with their emotions by covering it up. Like they, they'll take a, or even food addictions too, as well. Mm. They'll take a substance to, to, to release chemicals in their brain. It's actually really what's happening is they're releasing certain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, even they're, they're not even realizing exactly what they're doing, but they're taking these different substances, whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's a, a certain behavior that they do all the time that is like self-harming. They do these different things because it's releasing different chemicals in their brain, actually unconsciously making them happy or making them okay. Whereas opposed to before, they had this feeling of anxiety or this uneasiness or this worry or this depression, these blues that just they couldn't shake for weeks or days at a time. And 
you know, that's their way of coping with it. And they just go by through life and people would never even really know. You look back on different people, you know, your parents or your uncles or your, you know, ancestors, whatever. You just look back in time and it was like, you know, this guy lived Joe Schmo, you know, he was 70 years old, did this, 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 he was a carpenter. He did, you know, and it was like, there was anxiety and panic there, a panic attacks or a depression there the whole time, but nobody ever even knew about it because he just, he masked it up the whole time. He covered it up pretty well but he was never happy. This guy was never happy in his life. He never did the things he wanted to do. He, he was just floating by in life and he didn't know what else to do. So he turned to alcohol or he turned to weed or he turned to, you know, heavier drugs like heroin or whatever and covered it up for years. That's the type of things that's going on. It's like a, it's an insidious, it's an insidious emotional uh, challenge that we're all facing. Many of us anyways, not every single person, but many of us are facing and it's the ability of, it's really the question of what you're going to do when different things come your way in life. And it's, are you going to accept responsibility? Are you going to have this elite mind that I'm talking about in the book where you're going to fix whatever problems they are and fix it the right way, not actually just mask it up, not just brush it under the rug. Like it's not really there. Cause that's not actually fixing it. That's just, you know, covering it up. Are you going to actually take responsibility and, and figure out those solutions so you can get the help you need or do the things that you need to do to help yourself or are you going to pretend like it's not there and just live your life unhappy? You know, go by 40, 50, 60 years just being very blah and, and, and unhappy and, you know, living that life that so many people live, but they don't know how to get past it. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of how many people are living this way. They survive. It's yeah. blah, like you say. It's this kind of, I don't know. And I, again, I don't want to sound elitist. but their life is like, what are they doing with it? What's the point of it? Yeah. It's just like consume resources and take up time. It's, but you know, I think you, you really nailed it when you describe the difference between just numbing the problem and just feeling good right now versus actually dealing with it properly. I think some people with the best intentions actually make a mistake. They think, well, you know, it's never that bad. So I must be dealing with it. Okay without realizing they're kind of just numbing it and dragging it out. Yeah. You know, somebody who like eats comfort food, a great example, or you, you, like you mentioned, there are some behaviors that act like drugs, you know, video games. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these kind of it's other ways to release those chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. I even know some people like they're into extreme sports and stuff. And I wonder if that's a bit of a coping mechanism, you know, get these thrills and hedonistic lifestyles and stuff. Um, but they never really quite deal with the thing. So they have to deal with it every day in a sense. They have to constantly numb it and pacify it. And you know, one thing I almost envy you is because you hit the ground so hard, you were prompted through that kind of crisis to do something extreme about it. My own story, I never really hit the ground that hard. um, And it dragged out for a long time. I was never really that anxious to have full-blown panic attacks. I was never really that depressed to be suicidal. I was a few levels up, (laughs) but you can maintain your whole life. You know, you can just keep going, especially because I was, you know, I'd be binging on movies and drugs and stuff like that to just kind of get through week by week by week. Um, I think it was actually my suffering and with women that allowed me to finally crash, you know, because I, I refused to to pay for prostitutes, so I couldn't substitute <laughs> the absence of woman in my life, you know? 
Um, and I'm glad. I know there are a lot of guys I've worked with who use prostitutes as well. And that's just another version of like using drugs to deal with emotions. It's just a substitute. Yeah. Um, but because I never did, I was finally able to crash, which prompted me to fucking do something about it, <laughs> to finally take responsibility. So one of the things I think, I think people are scared to crash without realizing that that's what they need to do. Um, but I, I mean, it must be terrifying. Like for you to be, as you describe that moment where you're like, holy shit, I'm schizophrenic. There must've been such an awful moment for you. Um, I don't know what I'm asking here, but what kind of encouragement would you give to someone to actually put aside the short term fixes and really face in a painful way that problem head on? So I think you you bring up a, a really interesting point with the whole crash thing and whether that's actually a good thing or not. And I, and I think it's pretty clear now that it is a, a good thing. However, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't recommend people go out and try to crash first to, to solve their problems. It's all the, some of the things that are going on in their life. What I would say instead is if the crash is happening right now, if you're, if you're going through the panic attacks, if you're going through the suicidal depression type of things, if you're an alcoholic, whatever, if you're having the crash right now, then yes, definitely wake the fuck up and take action. Do it today, right now. There's no time. You, you don't really wait any longer if you're going through the crash right now. If you're like the majority of people probably listening, just more of towards the middle of that spectrum, like we talked about, just kind of floating by and, and living life passively from the sidelines. You're basically just watching the game of life go by in front of you and you're not an active participant in what's happening. If you're more like that towards that end of the spectrum, probably like in the middle or so, I'd say don't even wait for the crash to come. Don't just keep waiting and let life pass you by. Be a, a sideline watcher of the game. Step into the game now. Take charge of your life right now and, make, and take action on it right now so you can start living the life that you want to live. You don't have to wait for the crash to happen for you to change your life. Take this, take this interview right now. Take what we're saying, Dan, right now and actually just implement it into your life. And, and, and you'll see your life completely change. It won't happen overnight, but you start doing this every single day. Over the course of the next couple months, your life will completely change. Over the course of the next year or two, it will 100% change. You just have to have that mindset of you're going to create the things that happen. You're going to stop living passively. You're going to start taking action every single day on the things that you want. Yeah, <laughs> I hope that people can do that. Me personally, I had to crash. Yeah, had some to people get to do. This, Some people do. Yeah. I just had to get to this point. I call it the fuck it point. You'd be like, <laughs> fuck it, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm not like this. Yeah, I don't care what I'm. You know, you actually mentioned something about it before. This kind of like, even if it kills me, I have to do it differently. Yeah, you know, and that really spoke to me. I remember a similar thing, even when I started my business and I'd actually built my confidence personally quite a lot by that point was this kind of commitment. Like I'll die trying if I have to, mm -hmm. you know what this reminds me of uh, um, my grandfather, he died a couple of years ago, but he, he came back from world war two. He, he flew planes in world war two and we found out later he went through some pretty horrific things. But he came back and he started um, like a horse training farm, like equestrian racing and stuff. And he had no money and no experience and no skills, but he was just unstoppable and determined 
when he came back from the war to start this like high risk business. And he ended up becoming in New Zealand, at least he was one of the sort of, I don't know, one of the top horse guys. I don't know what you call that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As he was revered and he pioneered new horse training techniques and so on. He really like killed it in that. Yeah, industry. That's awesome. That's sick. And it wasn't until he died and I heard the eulogies from his, his old war buddies and the, the horse, um, I don't even know what to call it, horse association, um, where I realized, holy shit, how brave was he starting? And then I thought, I wonder what effect the war had. You know, if I found out later that, you know, he had people whose, he had brains flung into his face from his best friend getting shot and stuff like that, right? Like he was really in the war. And I thought, well, after that, starting your own horse farm probably isn't that scary. You know, like if you think I can handle people being shot in front of me and then having to go back into the front lines right afterwards, I can probably handle buying a horse. And, and I think that's, that's what I love about this, you know, the sound of your book. And I, I love actually doing this interview having not read it yet because now I'm excited, you know, to read it. Um, there's this idea that, you know, panic and suicidality, that, that's kind of a war. And like you mentioned at the start, if you can get through that, if you can survive day after day of that and those horrible moments where you wonder if you're schizophrenic. I used to wonder if I was psychopathic. That was my nightmare, you know. Yeah. Um, if you can get through that, then starting your own business is, there's nothing new uh, that you can't handle in that. It's just more uncomfortable challenges. It's just more going to the gym. I really like that idea. I think a lot of people don't realize that the suffering they've been through has been preparing them for something. Yes, definitely, man. You know, and if they can figure out what that thing is, then they can just dive straight in. They're not starting from nothing. They're actually yeah. well prepared. They have momentum too, which is key. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, if you've, I think that's one of the things I really relate to what you're saying here is people like battling with these, these demons. They don't realize that like, if they just switch over to like all that energy, they switch it into kind of making their life better. They're going to blast ahead. Oh yeah. You know, cause they've, they've already been like pushing hard. They just need to change the direction. I, th I think one thing I want to kind of finish up with here. I'd like to know where you're at currently with things like anxiety and depression, how they feature in your life, how you deal with them, if they still come up, that kind of thing. I love this question. Uh, so <clears throat> there's a chapter in the book where I talk about my last panic attack. And that was literally over, let's see, I'm 29 right now, just turned 29 a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was literally over 10 years ago now probably like 11 years ago mm. to the date of this uh, podcast, my very last panic attack. Um, it was all about, so the, uh, there's a whole bunch of strategies I talk about, but essentially the biggest strategy was to overcome that. And finally, cause I was still, it was a process of a few months, actually probably like four to six months where I was getting over anxiety slowly. But then there came a day where it was like, I was still getting panic attacks here and there. And there came one last final panic attack where I was like, you know, how do I just fit, like stop these things for good? Like, I don't want them anymore. And then I read this book a while back at the time, like months before, and it just kind of set it aside because it sounded so stupid. But essentially the whole process of ending my panic attacks and anybody who still gets panic attacks and 
what I realized later on, anybody who wants to overcome a fear, like a, a crippling fear of any sort, I had, a, I had a fear of roller coasters where every time I'd get on a roller coaster, I'd throw up and you know, I'd be petrified of them. Just like, this was my biggest fear at one point in my life. And I used the same approach to overcoming panic attacks to overcoming my fear of uh, riding roller coasters like a year or two afterwards. But essentially the process is uh, welcoming your fears back, whatever they are, you actually just call, you know, literally call aloud all the fears and anxieties that you're having, welcome them in. Um, the second step is to, sorry, the first step is observing them, just literally going through like every part of your body and mind and just being a, a passive observer of what's happening. So it's probably the only part in life where being passive and observing things is actually a good thing. It's kind of like that meditative type of thing where you're just like observing your thoughts and stuff and not actually acting or reacting to them. Uh, but that's step one is just observing them. The second thing is actually welcoming them. So going down and actually have a dialogue of all the things that are happening in your body and mind, your thoughts and feelings, and just welcome, welcoming them back as if you were a friend or as if it were a friend to you. Mm-hmm. And the final step is actually challenging it, asking for more of it, calling it out. So when you do this, so you go down and have like, give me more panic, give me more fear, give me more of these butterflies in my stomach, these sweaty palms, all the things that are associated with panic attacks in, in this situation. Uh, you, you call it out, you ask for more of it, you challenge it. You're basically exposing the fears, which are just a concoction of your mind, of, of a potential of something bad happening in the near future. You're taking all those things, those sensations, which are causing you to have those physical symptoms and thoughts and feelings and you're exposing it to the light and showing it for what it really is. And what it really is is just a fabrication of a non-reality that hasn't even happened yet that you're projecting into the future. And by challenging and asking for more of it, you're just saying, you can't hurt, you can't hurt me because you're not real at all. You can't, there's nothing there to actually physically or mentally or emotionally harm me because it's not real. It's not there. And so it all just disappears. And that actually happened to me one day when I was getting my last really bad panic attack. And I did all this process out and it just went away. And then again, I used this a couple of years later when I was going to uh, ride a roller coaster and I was like getting another panic, attack, like starting to get the, the same sensations of having a panic attack. And I just went on the ride with my buddy and I started, you know, yelling and putting my hands up and, and enjoying it. And actually the funny thing is, is when you can change your perspective on what's happening, all the symptoms and the sensations you can direct it into the way that you want. Like we talked about a moment ago, like using that momentum. So instead of hating the roller coaster, I, tra- I transitioned the energy of all that, you know, previous fear and anxiety surrounding it into excitement and enjoyment and like the thrill of riding roller coasters. And ever since that day, I loved riding roller coasters. I went on, you know, all the crazy upside down ones and the, you know, 80, 90 mile an hour, the crazy drop, all that shit. So it took a, a a while to overcome the anxiety initially, but once I was able to stop the panic attacks, I've never had one since that day. And any fear, any kind of like fear that I get, if I go on stage to give a speech or if I do even a podcast every once in a while, you, you know, you do like a, a big show or something and you get a little nervous, you have a big guest on. And anytime I get that, I just embrace the the fear. I step into it and and I actually literally change how I'm viewing it to a negative thing to a good, a positive feeling. And I'll use that as excitement to perform better, to be at my best, to have this like newfound energy that I wouldn't have if I didn't have anxiety or like what you would call anxiety otherwise. So I've actually learned and, and kind of changed my whole perspective. So now I, I embrace it and use it to my advantage as opposed to letting it take over and kind of use me like it, it was in the past. 
I think that's uh, cracking advice, man. That that really lines up with what I know works. You know, yeah. I mean, panic attack is really you fighting against anxiety. You know, you getting anxious about anxiety and suicidality is often, I think, depression about depression. You know, yeah. But if you embrace it, as you say, as you kind of like dive into it, surrender to it, challenge it, like get in there, it's different to fighting against it. It's more like a bring it on kind of thing. And you know, what you described is exactly what worked for me to overcome my fear of rejection. I was like, mm. yeah, let's go get some rejections. And it just changed everything. Just think yeah. like that changed everything. It's weird. It, it's, it made it's it like fun. Well it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This horrible thing that I had avoided my whole life that used to like keep me up at night. All of a sudden I'm like, bring it on, you know? And, <laughs> but that just, it was, it was actually an instantaneous change for me. All of a sudden, I went from this horrible thing, this nightmare I'd avoided and associated with embarrassment and humiliation and loneliness. All of a sudden, it became this fun game. It was a complete transition. Um, I still felt a lot of the same feelings, or at least the initial feelings, nervousness and so on, as you say. I just responded to them differently. And they, they didn't become what they'd usually become, this kind of like handbrake that stopped me from moving forward. They'd become this kind of, as you say, you transition them into excitement. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, there are a lot of people I think who not only they have panic attacks, they're now afraid of having panic attacks, which causes panic attacks. Yep. Whereas if they're like, bring it on, let's have one. Um, they'll find, yeah, fear tends to run away from you when you run towards it. Um, it, it likes to do, it likes to attack from behind. So if you're like, come on, it goes, no, no, I've got nothing now. And my back's down it's really weird like I, I was so sure i was scared of getting rejected and then when i went out to try and get rejected i like it was actually hard to do in terms of i just i there was nothing to be afraid of now you know i, I couldn't feel any resistance to doing it anymore um yeah man i i can't wait to read this book and um i quite genuinely um want to promote what you're doing here because I think you're onto it. I think uh, you're coming from a place, not only experience, which I think is critical. Anybody giving advice needs to know what it feels like to go through what they're giving advice on. But I mean, I'm almost jealous when you say you're 29. I'm like, shit, that's when I got started. Um, but like I said, you crashed early. So yeah, I think that's what helped was the, yeah. was the crash. And I was like 18, man. I just got, I, and that was all luck. You know, if I, if I didn't have that crash, like you said earlier, I would have probably dragged it out maybe half a decade or a decade on. And then it was just luck how, how early it started with me. And I'm fortunate for that. You know what I mean? Like mm. I've been able to help a lot of people, but it was because I went through so much shit in the beginning so early on. Yeah. I, I absolutely, you know, mine dragged out. I was, I think I was in a similar position at a young age, but then I had sort of some good luck and some easy wins. I remember I got a girlfriend at that stage where I didn't have to do any of the work and just kind of placated me. And yeah. it wasn't until I was 25, 26 where I started actually feeling pain from it properly. Um, and I consider that lost time, you know? Um, but yeah, so I think your age doesn't represent your experience. You've just gone through it earlier and harder, more condensed. Most people drag it out. And that's why I can't wait to uh, read this book. So for others who are keen to read it, um, where do they go? How do they find it? Uh, I think the best place to go is elitemindbook.com. 
So the book's called Elite Mind, but EliteMindBook.com will probably take you to the Amazon link to order. I don't know, depending on the country you're in, you might just have to go on Amazon and type Elite Mind. I'm sure it'll pop right up as well. Uh, or you can follow me too on Instagram. I'm pretty, pretty um, frequently post on Instagram. I'm posting like previews of the book and stuff. So uh, I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be out. So I'll be talking about the book and you can always find it on there. But uh, yeah, follow me. It's at uh, Justin Stenstrom for the Instagram link. And uh, yeah, either way, you'll find it if you pull it up on Amazon, I'm sure, or the uh, website I got. Awesome. I'll make sure to provide those links in the show notes as well. Um, and and right now it's uh, 7th of January. When is this book actually coming out? Uh, 28th, January. 28th, cool. Actually, I might uh, release the podcast closer to that date make more sense of it <laughs> awesome well uh justin you know we can talk even further but uh we'll wrap it up there for today but i am genuinely uh excited to read this book man and um i like the realness of it i like that this is a no bullshit approach to dealing with the kind of suffering that we all deal with as humans but some people take responsibility and do something good with it and others, as you say, they either suffer extremely or they just kind of sit in that middle and just coast, mm. um, but never really satisfied. I really appreciate you sharing that with us today and going through the effort to write the book so that other people can benefit from your experience. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much for coming on, brother. Really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate all the work that you do, man. You do some incredible things and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Mutual ad- admiration club, eh? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, links will be posted. Everyone can grab themselves a copy of the book. I recommend that you do. Um, I don't recommend people unless I genuinely believe in what they're doing. And Justin is one of those people. So check it out and uh, we will see you again next time, I'm sure. Thanks, man. Happy to come back on.